Welcome to Disrupted Asia, navigating the global order of tomorrow, a podcast series by FES in Asia, where Asia's and Europe's leading experts tackle some of the most pressing questions around the challenging geopolitical environment and how this is shaping the global order of tomorrow. In this podcast, we will discuss the unique set of challenges faced by small and landlocked states in Asia, how these are manifesting in the region at the moment, and what options do they have when caught amid global power shifts and geopolitical disruptions. To discuss these topics with us is Ambassador Gyan Chandra Acharya. He is a former Foreign Secretary of Nepal and a strong advocate of the issues affecting small and least developed countries in the global space. Between 2012 and 2017, he was the United Nations Undersecretary General and High Representative for the Least Developed Countries, Landlocked Developing Countries and Small Island Developing States. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. I'm Dinkim Silo, and we are delighted to have with us Ambassador Gyan Chandra Acharya. Ambassador, it is wonderful to have you with us today. It's good to be with you, Mr. Dinkim Silo. The role of small states has come to a sharp focus in our Asian region at the moment, whether it is in terms of the space they create for themselves to maneuver in the face of big power rivalries, such as the one between the US and China, or in the context of the threat to globalization and the multilateral rule-based order, arguably exacerbated by a global pandemic. What are some of the biggest worries for small states in this region? And how are these challenges manifesting for them? Uh, Thank you very much. I think you have rightly framed the current challenges of many smaller states in Asia. By the way, uh, small states have some issues relating to its definition as well. Uh, You know that the World Bank defines them as those having less than 1.5 million people. And there is also a forum of small states, uh, which is in fact led by Singapore. Uh, in New York, which is a voluntary forum which uh, defines the states with a million population. If we take the later definition, you know, then we have even a more than a majority of states around the world, almost over 110. And country like Nepal, which is about a 30 million, so neither of the definition captures Nepal. But we do understand that as country like Nepal, Bhutan, Laos, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, or even Myanmar, all of them are between the big powers. And uh, now, having said that, I think I'll come to your question. Of course, Asia as a whole uh, is coming into a sharp focus globally now. Uh, This is precisely because the region is the biggest in terms of its population, market, economy, military power now. And uh, Asia-Pacific region has become a center of gravity of the world. And naturally, smaller states in Asia are also in focus. Uh, I should also say that how the power plays works in Asia would also determine how it will be played out in the wider world uh, in the next few decades. Uh, because the rising global power and the aspiring powers, all in Asia and naturally the continent has higher stakes. Talking about the smaller states, uh, I must say that in the even in the best of times, they face particular challenges of limited space, competition, and their own challenges within the country in most cases, like underdevelopment, getting due benefits from the globalization, uh, if you look at uh, you know the last three, four decades, they have made some progress in reducing poverty, improving living standards of their people, uh, promoting economic growth, and building, in some sense, some resilience. However, not all of these states have equitably benefited from this uh, global explosion of growth, 
in the last 30 years uh, because of the capacity constraints, but also because of the uh, lack of this supportive global enabling environment. Uh, therefore, they don't want to take sides. Uh, they want really global cooperation because they have to operate in the global market as well as any other country. And they need also resources and also support for their capacity development. When you look at uh, all these small states in the last three, four decades, we can see three or four areas in which they have been really focusing on in terms of getting due benefit from the globalization. Uh, for example, you know, if we talk about the progress these countries are making, first is the general adherence to the multilateralism on fundamental issues of global importance. Especially after the end of the Cold War, we see that this is the platform where they could raise their issues, you know, collectively uh, at the global level. Second is the globalization, but which is also accompanied by, you know, the rules-based international trading order that we had seen in the past. But of course, uh, only the trading order alone will not help them, has not helped them. But it is also, you know, with the predictability of the rules at the global level, but also some preferential arrangements to these vulnerable countries and the smaller countries, is that it has helped them to really get some benefit out of the globalization. My third point is about revolutions in science and technology that have helped these countries somewhat leapfrog some of this traditional development you know, trajectory. And probably the fourth one is the uh, global cooperation, both from the North as well as the South, you know, that now the countries in the South are also capable of providing some support. So whenever you look at the financial assistance, investment, or the markets, or even availability of competitive goods and technology, and even some technical cooperation, if you like. So you asked about the challenges. Now, if you just look at all these things that help them to deal with the global developments a little bit easier, then naturally those things are now one of the things that they are really worried about. So all these things are being sharply eroded. That is the biggest challenge, you know, a sharper, deeper, and I should say even a comprehensive rivalry between the established power like the United States and the rising power like China has naturally touched in all aspects, you know, political, security, economic, and even technology. And multilateralism is also in retreat. Uh, multilateral institutions and principles are marginalized. Uh, unilateralism, protectionism, are increasing, and that is also a matter of great concern to them. And the smaller state also have a very big challenge of you know, inclusive globalization and making sure that it is fair and uh, collectively also development-oriented. And that's why I think uh, these challenges uh, have really uh, exacerbated the pandemic of COVID-19 has really made it upside down, I should say. It's no longer a health problem. It is a social problem. It is an economic problem. You have already raised a range of issues which uh, I have in mind to ask you in the following questions. But before that, let me just frame it this way. Nepal and many countries of South and Southeast Asia are no strangers to big power rivalries and have had the first-hand experience, as you have alluded. Keen to preserve their strategic autonomy, countries in the region have established multiple regional mechanisms apart from the global multilateral order, again, which you have alluded, and striving to maintain this relevance. At the same time, they're also struggling to define their independent development paths in the face of the many geopolitical and geoeconomic changes, which are mostly beyond their control. 
To what extent are the regional groupings threatened by this rivalry and will individual members eventually have no options but to break rank and pick a side as tensions escalate? Yeah, you are right that, you know, countries like Nepal and many other smaller countries in Southeast Asia have had the experience of managing the great power rivalry that was what you said in the past. Uh, now, talking about the regional cooperation, yes, I mean, the regional cooperation initiatives were very important to promote uh, this uh, independent development path and also to extend, uh, to a certain extent, I think, uh, to get them away from this rivalry of the uh, global powers and other powers. It also helped perhaps position them better by collectively pursuing their agenda. Uh, it was also a way of showing your presence in the global arena, especially for the smaller states. Now, if you are not in a group, the likelihood of uh, you know the world community listening to you is much less than if you are part of the uh, regional group. Uh, you know, the how do you really look at the uh, small states working within that regional cooperation, and especially uh, uh, about. Uh, um, you know, the individual members eventually having no option to, uh, you know, going to geoeconomic changes and all of that. I would say that I think the uh, this has been a constant challenge. But again, um, I think the regional cooperation has helped a little bit uh, to really uh, bring the uh, issue in a sharper way and in a collective manner. And that has really perhaps helped a little bit to push their collective agenda uh, with the with the global community as a whole. But again, there is a lot that needs to be done as we go forward. And they can also play a really important role to bring the competing powers to really look at the issues in a more dispassionate manner, in a more you know, the independent way, perhaps than only through the prism of rivalry between them. Perhaps uh, that is the contribution that the regional cooperation uh, can do even more. And the small states naturally being part of that, as I said earlier, uh, really helps them to project their, their common interest at the global level much more forcefully than if they were to go on their own. And what would you say are the opportunities that exist for these regional organizations to strengthen and learn from each other? And you also mentioned about small states working with middle powers can you explain what scope there exists and how might these look like? These smaller states, because of their many limitations, would have to work with all powers to begin with, of course. Uh, we can look at, look at the you know, country example like Nepal, Laos, Myanmar, even Mongolia. You see all of them are working with all the major powers. They all have worked with everyone. But again, if we all know that the middle powers is still you know, countries uh, with, a, with some powers to leverage, but because uh, on the on, on the on the contrary, smaller powers have very limited these attributes of power. Therefore, on their own, they cannot really uh, leverage much in terms of the uh, of the power. But they can be very important because I think they tend to look at the issues independently, and because they have very limited, uh, you know, the interests in terms of uh, you know the global implications, which means that. Uh, they they tend to look at all sides uh, without any uh, you know bias as such because they are because of their very limited interest and then again they look at more on the rules international uh, collective solidarity uh, finding a middle ground and then again of course finding a way to provide all the powers to work together I think that is where perhaps the 
working together with the middle powers and the small states can have uh, some sort of a, you know, closure, uh, you know, the possibility. So I think that there is a lot that they can really work together. And on the point of finding a middle ground, so we know that there is this emerging joint European Indo-Pacific strategy. Would you say that this can be seen as uh, something that's edifying that process, something that can be seen as a third alternative that enhances the room for maneuver for these smaller states? How might a corporation look like? Well, I mean, I think the recent EU strategy for cooperation in the Indo-Pacific is a welcome addition to a number of policies towards the region. And it has uh, highlighted, of course, the the reality of geopolitical competition in all critical areas, but also uh, it has tried to have some clarity about it and especially uh, to promote some strategic autonomy for Europe, I think. I mean, that's, uh, and it has focused on all dimensions, you know, from values to uh, trade to connectivity to maritime issues to security and defense. Uh, and of course, um, it has not mentioned China in the document at all because the EU has uh, the China strategy, which already talks about being a partner, a competitor, and also a systemic rival. Uh, but it has not designated China as an adversary as such as well. I think for the small states, naturally, taking the stand on the basis of fundamental principles of international cooperation, such as UN principles and rules-based international order, uh, this would be very important for them, you know, because the justice, equity, and the inclusiveness are really critical for all these countries. Otherwise, they don't have any say or any uh, place for really influencing the global development as such. Therefore, because these principles work as a restraint also on raw power politics at all levels, especially when readjustments are being you know, talked about, I think it will be easier to collaborate with all the powers, the global powers, and then, of course, regional and middle powers, if we all try to really focus on some of the fundamental principles and then the benefit of working together at the global level as well as the regional level. I would also say that I think why it, is, it will be very important to really look at all sides, global powers, but also middle powers and the small states, is that dialogue and cooperation should be stressed to resolve international disputes. And the small states also have a large stake because they have a very high degree of vulnerabilities. If, of course, the, you know, the peace and the stability are affected, every country is affected. But the, uh, the resilience is much less for the smaller states than the bigger states. That's why I think they have much more stake at the, at the global level as well as the regional level, perhaps from that perspective, uh, than other states. And then I should say that uh, the third is that, you know, the world is so complex, interrelated, so big. Look at the pandemic, look at the climate change, look at the global issues today. And everyone has to really collaborate. And I hope that, you know, the small states would look at the Indo-Pacific strategy as well as the whole strategy is coming around the world in that perspective, really to find uh, middle ground, common ground and work with everyone to make sure that we will have a very cooperative global order going forward. Several leaders in the region, such as Singapore's Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Sien Long, have often stressed that while small states may seem powerless in the face of two opposing elephants, in this case, <laughs> often referred to as US and China, uh, that they are not entirely without agency. And you just mentioned how very often they are disproportionately vulnerable uh, in such situations. What levers do small states have in enhancing their agency? 
And do you think small states uh, might attempt to leverage these strategic gains they stand to make or maybe uh, work towards de-escalating the situation? I think this is this is also a very important question. I also believe that you know the smaller states are also not without agency. Of course, I mean, in fact, uh, there are some advantages to them: a very collaborative and inclusive approach to the global order to begin with, which already gives a very good framework to really look for solutions. But mind you, I mean, it is also very important for us to really look at you know that whenever the smaller states uh, really look at the global issues. Um, and because of these limited attributes of power, limited uh, capacity, uh, they tend to look at the issues not only from the perspective of a direct benefit that they, they will get out of it. They really tend to look for the regional public goods or the international public goods, if you like. So uh, that is one very clear advantage of the uh, small states. Second, if you look at the, as I said in the beginning, that... Uh, Majority of the states in the world today are small states, if you like, you know, more than 110, 120. Today, we still follow the Westphalian model of, you know, the states being the fundamental unit of the global order. And if the majority of the, them are small states, I think it is incumbent upon the global uh, community to really look at the legitimacy of the issues and then to really hear the small states. There are many examples, you know, the smaller countries taking lead in international forums. Like Switzerland and Finland have their one set of issues like mediation issues and humanitarian issues. They take a very strong role. Even, even Singapore has, you know, accountability, coherence and the transparency leadership role that it takes in the work of the Security Council in the UN. A country like Nepal has also a small, has taken a very strong uh, position on the landlocked and the law of the sea issue, you know, the linkages between the two, as well as the leadership role on the uh, least developed countries issue. Mongolia has also taken a very strong initiatives on the Korean Peninsula issue. So, and, and Qatar, if you like, another small country in the Asia Pacific, you know, the whole region is also taking a number of mediation related issues, as well as civilizational dialogue issues. And then if you go to other regions, there are also many countries, you know, they have taken many important initiatives. Uh, in terms of really bringing the global community uh, together on certain issues and really urging them to look at it from the basis of the merit itself, you know, how it is really going to contribute to the global community. I, I think uh, these are some of the very important issues uh, that gives them a little bit of a strength to really work at the global level. And then I should say, I think the small states are also the staunchest defender of the multilateralism, if you like, at the global level and the rules-based international order. And we should also, um, you know, understand that the size of a nation really doesn't determine the excellence of the ideas and thoughts. Uh, you can always have excellent ideas coming from anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, it is not a monopoly of any uh, big country or the big powers. And then in order to really enhance their uh, maneuverability, as you were talking about, but I, I do believe that they have to really work on the multilateral because that is in their longer term interest. But if uh, they think that there is an over-dependence on one power of the small state, naturally they also tend to diversify their relationship with other powers as well in order to find a proper balance. So uh, you, one can, you know, smaller states can really work with the powers, rival powers, but at the same time, they can also promote multilateralism, 
cooperative global order, rules-based international order, much more forcefully, perhaps, if there is, of course, a tacit support of the global powers to really, uh, you know, uh, to really take the issue forward. Um, I'm not saying that small powers have all the, uh, you know, alone, you know, they can do that. But what I'm saying that by raising the voice of region and conscience and also taking an independent, you know, the, the views on some of the issues, they can play a very strong catalytic role, I must say, in strengthening peace, justice and the, of course, the uh, stability, uh, not only in the region, but also at a global level. That's certainly uh, highlighting a whole range of areas in which small states can play a role at the moment in preserving this rule-based multilateral order and also very much in promoting peace, stability and also justice in the region. As a final question, uh, can I push you a bit forward with this, these ideas that you have presented and ask what would be some of the mechanisms, some of the practical ways in which they could do it? Well, I mean, uh, as I said, because, you know, the focusing on the values and fair and equitable global order, and I should say with primacy of multilateral, multilateralism, I would be, would be the number one role for the smaller states to really uh, play effectively. Uh, engaging at the regional level again, opening communications, but also trying to really put them, you know, uh, put their heads together on all the issues which are related to the global peace, regional peace, but also stability and order with a power of conviction. I think that is what is very important for the small states. And telling them that, look, you know, the global issues are now so interconnected that the global solidarity and the global public opinion really matters a lot these days. And uh, smaller states uh, uh, doesn't mean that we have a smaller interest at the global peace. Therefore, I think the fundamental principles of the sovereign equality, collective security, I think Center for Solving International Disputes as the multilateral you know, forum, these have served, if not ideally, to all the issues that we are dealing with. But at least it has been a very important anchor uh, to really look at some of the issues uh, collectively. Um, it has not really solved everything, and that's why we have a big challenge coming up. Therefore, there is a reordering and all of that. And we also know that the multilateralism itself has to be reformed because it doesn't really reflect the current realities of the world as well. That is also true. But the, there is a difference between the principles and the institution. Institutions and the structures need to be reformed. But the fundamental principles, I think that is that remains our you know guiding beacon, if you like, for stability and peace. Well, that is where I think the, the, the small states uh, should really uh, push. The second issue is, again, the uh, global community uh, should really uh, find a way that, uh, you know, compromise and dialogue is really critical. We also have to find a, a, a platform beyond this multilateral platform, the regional, sub-regional platform, that also must be effectively used uh, in order to really promote and to get the view of the regional community, uh, which is which has an Im immediate stake at the uh, regional peace and stability. So both the regional groups, regional uh, organizations and the groups, as well as the uh, multilateral should be uh, used uh, in a more complementary manner than before. And some of the issues which are closer home that can be really dealt with uh, very, very, uh, you know, the uh, strongly, if we have all, we all sit down together. 
And third, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, very important issue for all of us is that the cost of non-cooperation is very high. We cannot think of uh, having a very, uh, you know, mutually exclusive rivalry at this time and age. Uh, it's not only for the smaller states that uh, whether they should take this position or that position. It is for, even for the bigger states. They should not be looking at or this or that, uh, you know, in terms of the block or in terms of the, um, you know, the, 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 the your group of, uh, you know, the thinking only. You have to really be, a, a, you have to have universal and inclusive approach to the uh, solution. Well, thank you very much uh, for sharing your insights. You have provided an insightful discussion around how these challenges are manifesting in the region, but at the same time provided uh, valuable suggestions on what they could do to de-escalate the situation, advocate for their own agency, develop strategic paths that will allow them to pursue greater prosperity, stability, peace, and justice in the region. Uh, this has been a very insightful conversation, Ambassador. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. This was Ambassador Gyan Chandra Acharya former Foreign Secretary of Nepal and the United Nations Under-Secretary-General and High Representative for the Least Developed Countries, Landlocked Developing Countries and Small Island Developing States. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Dimkin Silo. Research by Mekla Jar, Directed by Milkor Gunter. And produced by MediaWalk. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it and listen to more of our podcasts on similar topics. Visit our website, asia.fes.de, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia. Thanks for joining us.